0: Before we read uh, our scripture, which, by the way, is Isaiah 43, it's found on page 603 if you are here without a Bible and like to use the Bible that we have in the chair or the pew, page 603, Isaiah 43. First, I'd like for you to take out the outline that was handed out. It probably would be good to look at the structure even before we read it. This section is arranged in what's called a chiasm and that's a big fancy word well not that big but fancy Uh, so it it means the subjects come out abc and then it backs out cba okay and you can see down there how it looks uh, as you get to the middle that becomes the emphasis of the passage verses three and four god's name and israel's evaluation and god's heart and israel's evaluation But also the ends are important. You see where you begin and end with being created and formed, etc. Okay? Now, what happens in this structure is the middle and the end support the other parts. Okay? So, because we have been created by God, because we are so valued by God, therefore He will provide for His people. That's the feel of the passage. He has created us. He values us, therefore He will surely provide us and provide for us and protect for us. And that's the order in which we're going to take it, ACB. Call me crazy, uh, (laughs) but that's the way we're going to do it. But uh, as we read through, you'll be able to see some of this uh, structure. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Now we're in the middle. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you... I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. And now we end where we began. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, and made. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us that we all the more will believe in your work for us, that we are your creation. We are so highly valued by you, and you will provide for your people in every circumstance. Bless us, Lord. Grow us in our faith. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Now, first, the the beginning and end, verse 1 and verse 7, use words that have to do with the creation itself, Genesis 1 and 2. We're calling this God's initiation, how He created us as a people, created Israel as a people. But He uses Genesis words. The word create is the second word in the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. The word made there is taken from Genesis as well, like he made the sun and the moon, uh, and he made the animals. Formed is even more intimate, where in Genesis 2-7 it says he formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And even the word called is used repeatedly in Genesis 1, that he called the uh, day, the light day, and he called the dark night. So he calls us in this powerful way. He names us And owns us in that way. So, though we say in the New Testament, especially the new creation is present, you could say in a way that God is saying in verse 1 and verse 7, you are the new creation. You are my second creation. I created the world. I created you, Israel. And this should encourage us that God will not forget us his second or new creation. Think of how he attends his original creation every second of the day, 24-7. Just take the Milky Way, for example, okay? They say it's an average galaxy, you know, 120,000 light years across, average galaxy, 400 billion stars, just your average galaxy. God is keeping every single one of those, fusing hydrogen into helium, exactly like he wants. And that's enough, right? Taking care of 400 billion stars. There are hundred, at least 100 billion of those galaxies of 400... What is 400 billion times 100 billion? We don't know, you know. (laughs) The number's so big. How many insects in the world? They say quintillion. How many is that? I don't know. It's a lot. And he's taking care of every single insect every single day. Just imagine the care and attention he gives to his creation because of its extent. And with us... We can say, He surely will take care of us, His second creation, because not only is His power and goodness and wisdom involved in creating us, He spilled His own blood to create us. He took upon flesh. He died for us. He was raised for us. We are His creation by His own suffering and death and resurrection. Do you think that He will ignore His new creation? Absolutely not. And you can see how he doesn't ignore his, his present creation. And all the more will he attend us. He will not ignore what he has created. And so he created you. He says, I redeemed you. This is that precious word where he is the next of kin. And he takes on the responsibilities of the next of kin. He takes on the debts and burdens of the next of kin. Identifying with us carrying that which we can't and removing it from us, assuming our crippling debt. It reminds me, uh, many of you have read and seen the movies Pride and Prejudice, and there's that scene where Elizabeth, it looks like she and Darcy are going to get together until she hears that Lydia has run off with Wickham, and he's lost forever. She is lost forever, and their family is shamed forever. And she sees... Darcy, hear the news, and he just excuses himself. And to her mind, he's gone. There's no way in his high, high position that he's ever going to associate with us. I'm, I'm dead to him. Our family's dead to him. Little did she know that he's the one that went looking for Lydia and Wickham in London. He's the one that found them out. He's the one that paid the money. He ransomed her back. Oh, yeah, he was going to associate himself with that family. He was going to identify with that family. He was going to take on the burden of that family. And so Jesus does for us as our kinsman redeemer, owning our burden even in the person of Jesus Christ, standing with us, bearing sin for us, so identifying with us. He's treated as the sinner that he didn't deserve. And so he lavishes his love upon us in bearing our debts. Indeed, because you are precious and I love you, right? And he says in verse 7, I've created you for my glory. It is amazing that we have his name. He says, I call you by my name. And he's tied his glory and name to our well-being His glory is forever bound up in our spiritual well-being and finally in our physical well-being. He's attached His glory to that. Will He abandon His own glory? No. And that's how He's going to glorify Himself, in His kindness to His people. So when you're helpless in your sin and you're devastated with guilt and grief, do you think God will not want to glorify His grace in you? And even if you've come again and again and you need Him still, that He still will not want to glorify His grace in you? Yes, He will. He will constantly exalt the goodness and kindness and mercy that He has as our God. And you can cry out to him, O Lord, glorify your grace in me. O Lord, glorify your undeserved favor in doing me good. That's the way the psalmists pray when they say over and over, for your sake, Lord, for your sake, forgive my sin. And at the end of this chapter, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. For my glory, I will forgive you. Oh, how encouraged we should be that he will attend us and care for us. That's why he says, don't be afraid. Don't ever be afraid that I've abandoned you or forgotten about you. Don't be afraid that this is all a fantasy. Maybe you never were mine to start with. Sometimes it feels that way. I don't even know if I belong to you. Don't fear those things. You are mine. I have died for you. And I love that phrase at the end of verse 1. You are mine. Literally, it says, mine you are. You know? There's this precious cry like he's holding treasure or gold. You're mine. You're mine. How can, he, how can he set his heart on us like that? Why would he do that? But this is his great love for us. And so from verses 1 and 7, we see God's initiation, his creation of this people. And then extending into that, verses 3 and 4 speak of how valuable we are. Already we've seen that in in his creation of us, but it's even more set forth in verses 3 and 4. First in verse 3, you see, he tells us who he is and what he is, And that he is ours. The emphasis there is whose he is. Okay? Notice, I am the Lord, your God. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. See the point? It's not just that I'm these wonderful, amazing things. I'm these things for you. I'm this for you. And these names recall the deliverance from Israel. Egypt, Lord, or Yahweh, is the word that he spoke to Moses and said, tell them Yahweh sent you. And the the word basically means I am, but in its context it means I am here to deliver you. I am for you. I will act on your behalf. So it's the redemptive name of God. Even as here, I'm Yahweh, your Savior. That's what I am. That's That's what I do. And, and Savior, uh, the, the Hebrew word Moshe, comes for those who cannot rescue. A Savior comes for those who cannot rescue themselves. Like a woman's described as being attacked in the country, and it says, there is no one to help her. No Moshe, no Savior. It's for those who are utterly helpless. He comes as Savior, and I'm your Savior. And that's closely related to the word Yeshua, Joshua, Yeshua. We call Jesus. That's why the angel said, You'll call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He's your Savior. All the more he's your Savior because he's taken on your flesh and he's borne your sins on the cross. And then this title, Holy One of Israel. This is a favorite of Isaiah's. It's used three times in the Psalms, three times in other prophets, over 25 times, all the remaining times here in Isaiah. Probably because of Isaiah 6, in the vision, he is, he's set before God as the one that the angels are saying, to seraphim, holy, holy, holy. And uh, I Isaiah responds, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And so we see God reveal as the Holy One of Israel in His majesty, majestic beauty and greatness that causes us to worship Him and honor Him, to be drawn to Him and yet to be aware that we are so unlike Him because He is sheer goodness, sheer mercy, and we're so unlike Him. So different from him. But in his sheer mercy, even there in Isaiah 6, what does he do? He doesn't expel Isaiah. A coal is taken from the altar and it burns the lips of Isaiah, and he says, Your sin is taken away. That's what God does in his holiness, he acts in mercy. So in Hosea eleven nine 9, he says, I will not carry out my fierce anger. I will not turn and devastate Ephraim because I'm God and not a man, the holy one among you. Why am I not going to judge you? Because I'm the holy one. I'm not like you. I'm God. I show mercy. And so John Frame can say, God's holiness is the basis For his mercy. And this, of course, is shown most gloriously when the Holy One of Israel takes upon himself flesh and bears our sin. The Holy One of Israel, because he's so pure and infinite and clean in his goodness, he sacrifices himself for sinners. That's what the Holy One does. And so now... We read not just that seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, but now it says myriad upon myriad and thousands upon thousands of angels are crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And those two things are not different. The Holy One is the Lamb who was slain. Because He's the Holy One, He allowed Himself to be slain for us. And so this Holy One says not only who I am to you in verse 3, but then how He feels toward them in verse 4. And those are related closely, obviously. You're precious to me, honored, I love you. Why should we be precious treasure to God? Why should He bring honor to us? We're told in the New Testament that He will glorify us together with Christ in the final day. Why would He do that? It says we will share in Christ's glory as a human being. It says we are co-heirs with Christ. We who were dead in our sin, we who walked in darkness, we who hated Him without cause. But because He is holy, because His mercy is unlike anything we can imagine, He takes us to Himself, He makes us His own through Christ, and we amazingly become His holy one. We're called saints. He carves us out of the world and we belong to him. We're intimate with him and by his grace, we who did not love become merciful lovers, holy ones after the image of the holy one who's merciful. And as you see in the second part of verse three and verse four, he gives... Others as ransom as an exchange. This, in the first place, he refers to Egypt, Cush and Sebo, or southern parts of Egypt, or south of Egypt, but they're included with Egypt. And this probably refers to the giving of up of Egypt to free Israel. You see the judgment of Egypt because they wouldn't release Israel, and the gaining of Israel. So Egypt became the ransom or the exchange. And even says here that all peoples will become ransom and uh, exchange. It, it has a feel of the covenant in which he says, anyone who curses you, I will curse. It's in effect saying, as Motir says, in order to deliver his people, the Lord must consign all others to loss. This is the basic meaning. You are my bride... I am willing to pay any price to redeem you from your captors. That's it. You are my bride. I will pay any price to redeem you from your captors. And of course, this is finally expressed that he was so willing to redeem us that he consigned even his son for the ransom, for the exchange to redeem his people. He meant it, didn't he? I will consign, I will will give not only peoples, but here's the real thing. I will give my son as your ransom to have you. That's the way the Holy One of Israel loves. And so he created, he initiated and created us. He values us. We are precious to him, and that's why he provides so wonderfully for us. It's pictured in verses 2 and verse 5 and 6. Verse, verses 2, 5 and 6. Those are the two B parts, right? And there's the sense in verse 2 of going into exile. That's the waters and the fire. And then verses 5 and 6, the gathering from exile, gathering my people wherever they're scattered. You see, they're related that way. And so. It's not just the exile, though. It extends to whatever Israel will face in the future and whatever we will face in the future. Water and fire is a way to say that in any and every difficulty, anything that you can imagine, trial, heartbreak, loss, I am with you in it. And this passage promises water and fire. We've seen the devastation of floods. We've seen the devastation of forest fire or apartment fire. See how horrible it is. And God says, there are going to be floods and there are going to be fires. I won't spare you from those, but I will be with you in it and I will preserve you. I love how one person puts it, waters without drowning, fires without being burned up. There you go. That's what you can count on. Waters, but I won't drown. Fires, but I won't be burned up. And brothers and sisters, these things that come upon us are sometimes bizarre. They're confusing. They're senseless. Ecclesiastes tells us that when evil falls, it just is indiscriminate. It seems so arbitrary. It's vain, he says. It's vanity. It defies explanation, and many times we see no purpose whatsoever in it. Even then, God joins us as Christ did at the grave of Lazarus, and the best translations say he was angry, angry at the death of his friend, angry at what sin and the curse had brought upon his friend, and he raises him from the dead. That's a sign for us This is what he's going to do against evil. This is what he thinks about evil. He is not the friend of evil. He doesn't pat evil on the head. He's going to destroy evil. And so he is with you to feel the pain of it, to hate it with you, and it's senselessness with you to finally deliver us all from it in the end. In the words of Martin Band, whom we heard speak on this subject this week, he repurposes our suffering, right? No matter its evil source, no matter if we brought it on ourselves, it will not overwhelm us. It will not burn us. And a great image is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery furnace in Daniel. But there is a figure that appears with them, one like the Son of Man. And they're protected in the fire. And, brothers and sisters, The Lord Jesus is that one who attends you, who's with you in the fire so that you will not be burned. All the more he has taken upon your flesh. He has suffered everything like we have, the writer of Hebrews says, and been tempted like we have. He has entered into it. He's not standing in the background. He's not looking from the bleachers. He is in the middle of it himself. He bore it by his own flesh. And so he is able to come to your aid in the midst of that suffering and that temptation that comes in suffering. And he will make sure as he repurposes it to to strengthen you through it, to give you life in it so that more and more you become like the Holy One of Israel. You become more and more like this clean, merciful, holy one. And you will be formed into mercy in the midst of the great difficulties that you and I will face. And then, finally, that's verse 2, okay? Verses 5 and 6, the other part of that, the gathering of his people, the sense of gathering them from exile. Bring your offspring from the east. From the west I will gather you up. He will gather his people wherever they are. And the idea is, hey, whether you're in Babylon or whether you were in Egypt before or whether you're scattered to the four corners of the earth, don't worry. I will gather you back. I will find you. You're never lost to me. I know exactly where you are. Just like he knows where all 400 billion stars are in 100 billion universes. Okay? Galaxies. I mean, how many universes? (laughs) um, Well, I won't say what that reminds me of, but um, Buzz Lightyear, but we won't go there. Okay. (laughs) To infinity and beyond. Um, But you see, I will gather you. You are safe and you're always as good as home because nothing will keep me from bringing you on that day of rescue. Nothing. I know where you are. I know where you are. I know where every ant is. I know where every leaf is. I know where every star is. I surely know where you are, and I know what you're going through. And spiritually, we could say that God has been bringing his people home through 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Christ. In Revelation, we read that people from every tongue and tribe and nation are before the throne of God. They are in, we might say, their provisional home, okay? Before the throne of God, awaiting that final day when Christ will bring them back, it says in Thessalonians. And will raise their bodies, no matter where they are, what's happened to their bodies He knows and he will gather them up and reform them into the image of Christ's body. Then we who are here when Jesus comes, our bodies will be transformed into his glorious body. Oh yeah, he will gather us. He will gather us dead or living. He will gather us. And we will live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. All of his people scattered in the world will be gathered Everyone else, sadly, will be evicted from the premises, removed from the property, and the meek shall inherit the earth. He will bring his sons and daughters from the end of the earth. They will receive the kingdom. They will reign with him forever. And his glory is tied to that. His glory is that he will keep you and he will gather you home. No wonder that he says here, fear not. And then the New Testament context, fear not I have redeemed you with my own blood. Fear not I am with you having taken on your flesh and your burdens and your sin and your suffering and your grief and shame. Fear not. I am your God. I am your Savior. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, enable us all the more to be convinced of your greatness as God, your power and sovereignty. And Lord, that you have created us as a people. You, therefore, will sustain us and keep us. You, therefore, pay every attention to every little detail of what happens to us. And you're with us in the midst of it, and you will gather us up at the end. Oh, Lord, may we trust you. May we rejoice in you. May we be sustained to face the terrible waters and the terrible fires that we will face in this world. Thank you that you have gone through them before us and you've borne their most terrible weight that we will never even bear. And you will attend us in them throughout our lives. Oh, Father, thank you for such a gift as the Lord Jesus. Amen.